Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about an interesting topic. It sounds like a NATO or the Collective Security Organization, but it's not in the West, but in the East. So we're going to speak about the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which originates from the conclusion of the Collective Security Treaty, which was signed in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, on May 15, 1992, by the heads of Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. Later it was joined by Azerbaijan, Belarus and Georgia. The treaty entered into force upon completion of the national ratification procedures on April 20, 1994. This treaty has an interesting article called Article 4. Article 4 says if one of the member states undergoes aggression, arm and attack, menacing to safety, stability, territorial integrity and sovereignty, it will be considered by the member states as aggression. So there's a similar clause as NATO has. But we see the war in Ukraine and we see attacks on Russian territory. And some people, they start to ask questions. What's the role of that collective security treaty organization nowadays? For that reason, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Ambrosio. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Dr. Thomas Ambrosio is a professor of political science and public policy at North Dakota State University. As a political science professor, Dr. Ambrosio has extensively explored the dynamics between ethnic groups and nation states. His research covers a range of topics, including irredentism, the status of nations in international law, the influence of ethnic interest groups on foreign policy, and the impact of political structures on nationalist expression. His work also delves into how Russia's self-perception influences it in its interaction with the US and Israel in a unipolar international system. Dr. Ambrosio also researched Russia-China relations, authoritarian learning regimes, American views on the Russian threat, and all connecting things with Russia and Russian foreign policy. He is also well known for the very good publications in leading scientific journals and books that he wrote. Many people speak about NATO, many people speak about Russia, but this security organization is a little bit, it's not well known among people. And when we consider the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict, when we consider Chechnya, now Ukraine, people ask, what's the point? Of this collective treaty organization. So let's start with the first question and maybe we can elaborate a little bit on the objectives of this treaty in 2024. So you had these initial members who were part of this initial organization, um, but then when it created, a full organization was created, not all the members of the initial treaty uh, signed up. So it really is much more limited. It's like Azerbaijan, Georgia, these are not members anymore. Um, so the idea behind this CSTO, uh, at least in theory, was to be Russia's response to NATO. And now, of course, we fast forward to 2024. And the CSTO looks like it's it's pretty much a dead letter. Um, they just had a summit. In in, in uh, they had one in November. They had they just had one in January, um, but ultimately this is a dead letter. It doesn't really 
meet the needs of anyone at this point. Uh, so at the last summit, uh, you had one of the members, and again, we have a relatively small group of, uh, of countries here, Armenia didn't show up. Uh, Armenia uh, refused to show up because they were protesting the fact that the CSTO, uh, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, did not intervene on its behalf in its conflict with, Ar with Azerbaijan. Now, there's a lot of kind of complications with this, but the uh, Armenia is looking elsewhere. And the uh, Russian foreign ministry spokesperson or Kremlin spokesperson had a statement, something like, we still consider Armenia an ally and we hope they do too. And um, so that, so if you have one of the core members, the founding members, potentially leaving or at least looking askance a, a, a at, at this organization, and that's going to undermine its credibility. So in 2024, unless something drastically changes, it looks like this may have run its course as an institution, but it's going to be something to limp along for a while because it's it's easier to keep it and have it mean very little than to actually just discard it because that would send a message, at least for the, the, the other non-Russian members, that would send a message to Russia that they may not want to send. So they'll kind of play along for a bit. In what ways uh, has Russia leveraged uh, the CSTO to counterbalance NATO, like influence in Eurasia and influence in the Eastern Europe, can we can we at least compare some similarities between NATO and this oh. organization, or is it is the base principle of functioning a completely different scale? Um, I, I think it actually does compare pretty well in three ways, at least in theory. The first way was to lock these countries. So again, this is Russia's project. Um, the other members benefit from other things too, but we could talk about that. But this was Russia's plan to lock these countries towards Russia, towards Moscow in a security way, um, in a security manner. Because part of the CSTO treaty is that these members cannot join in an alliance with any other country. So to make that exclusive. Uh, there was also a de facto agreement that was made that no other countries would be allowed to have bases on these territories without the agreement of everyone. So that's the first thing, locking them towards Moscow. The second was that it legitimized Russian military bases. Now, you had bilateral agreements between these countries that allowed for Russia to have their military bases, but this gave it this kind of multilateral veneer that it's not Russia doing this, it's a CSTO doing this or it's you know and it's very similar to the united states having military bases in europe which is part of nato so it's kind of has that veneer even though everyone knows it's american bases there and then finally the idea behind the csto was to ensure that these countries look to russia not just for security but also for their military hardware as well as training so they become increasingly dependent upon russia for that. So you're kind of, if you think about it, locking these countries to Russia and not allowing them to go anywhere else. Can we talk a little bit, what is the relation between Russia and the member states within this organization? Because we know that it's not uh, that coherent as, as people think in a theoretical way, because we see many clashes 
among the countries. We have like Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and, and others. Kazakhstan is also not willing to fully support Russia, for instance, in the war in Ukraine. So there are different narratives, but, but what's the complex overview of that? Right. So Russia's, we could talk about kind of almost pre-Ukraine, post-Ukraine uh, uh, invasion in, in, in February of 22, and, and the, how that shifted relationships. So um, it happened a couple, so we can kind of go through each of the countries. So one of the issues you mentioned um, is that you have conflict and actually shooting going on occasionally between Tajikistan and, and Kyrgyzstan. Both of these are members of the CSTO, and there was some hope from you know both sides that Russia would intervene to kind of stop it, and they didn't because, of course, Russia is distracted. So the, the, the Tajik president made some comments um, last year about how – essentially saying without saying that Russia is failing in its role as security guarantor. Essentially, we signed up to this treaty, and it's not providing us with security. So both of those countries are now questioning their relationship. Of course, Armenia is the big one um, because Armenia, um, it's its co-ethnics in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh were essentially removed from Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan won that conflict completely now, and there has been some shelling into Armenia proper. So that was where Armenia saying, we're now, you know, this should trigger the collective security uh, uh, clause. And Russia's like, well, those were kind of errant. Those were, you know, those were minor. It's not enough. But the reality is twofold. One, um, Russia simply does not have the bandwidth to do anything about it, um, either militarily or even probably, you know, in terms of, of actually policy prescriptions. But also, Azerbaijan has been playing an interesting has, has played this right where they are are reaching out to Russia and saying we want a more positive relationship with Russia. So Russia does not want to spoil its budded, uh, uh, budding relationship with Azerbaijan, which has been rocky over the last few decades. So though, so now we're talking, you know, again, another country that Russia is having problems with, with Armenia. And then we have Azerbaijan, or sorry, then we have Kazakhstan. Ever since Russia uh, annexed Crimea in, in, in 14 and started the, and then the war began in the Donbass and especially after, after the large scale invasion, Kazakhstan has really started to look very askance at Russia has looked at Russia very nervously because there was some concern that Russia may attempt a Ukraine-style scenario in northern uh, Kazakhstan, where there's still a sizable but uh, a smaller Russian minority. So you see, saw this entire process by which Kazakhstan began to um, change its national security documents, and I actually have an article about this where I kind of look through all their documents pre and post, um, they started to really boost up their military to kind of lock things down in the north even more than they already had. And then after the full-scale invasion 22, uh, Kazakhstan um, got really, really nervous at that point. And you started seeing uh, Kazakh policy being very much going back to its older policy of multi-vectorism, which is that we want positive relations with everyone and we're not going to lock ourselves into any direction to Russia, to China, to the West. But of course, according to the treaty, they're supposed to be locked to Russia. So Kazakhstan is playing this interesting game. 
again, complicating that a bit. So because there's layers and layers and layers of complication. Um, in January of, of 2022, the CSTO intervened in Kazakhstan in order to, um, well, as, as in part of the context of the protests and the, some would argue, potented or potential or uh, attempted overthrow of the Takayev government. Um, it's unclear what's going on, what's going on behind the scenes, but certainly there were mass protests and uh, the CSCO for the first time actually intervened in order to help a country deal with internal conflict. Now, that they didn't actually do anything on the ground as much as free up Kazakh troops and police to do what, you know, their, their, uh, their actions to kind of crack down on it. And there was a sense or expectation in the Kremlin that now Kazakhstan owes us. Well, that very quickly became um, a, a dead letter uh, in the sense that the Kazakhs were like, nope, we don't owe you anything. We're not going to support you in Ukraine. Uh, in fact, we're going to allow uh, Russian citizens to flee across the border men of military age will flee across the border into Kazakhstan and, in fact, make it easier for them to get temporary um, residency and to integrate into our economy because it's a great reverse brain drain um, from, from Russia to Kazakhstan. And the rhetoric coming out of, of Kazakhstan has been increasingly not anti-Russian because they realize they have to live with Russia. Russia's not going anywhere. Um, it's always going to be there, but certainly distancing themselves. So there's our next country. So again, pulling back. And then finally, we have Belarus. Now, in 2014, Belarus also went through a similar process that, uh, that Kazakhstan did, which was starting to pull back a bit from Russia, starting to make maybe some overtures towards the West, even in changing their national security documents and increasing their military and kind of independence. But the reality is that in uh, the 2020 protests against Lukashenko, um, as a result of the election, Belarus is now effectively part of Russia for all intents and purposes. Um, it's still independent, but that's m largely on paper. Um it's probably about as autonomous as Chechnya is. You know, Chechnya has a lot of autonomy, obviously, within Russia, um, probably more so than any of the other um, uh, regions. But Belarus probably is about the same. Um, so, to some extent, Belarus is, you know, they, they they're just locked to Russia now because their leader is locked to the Kremlin for his survival. Is this is this treaty? any useful for Russian energy and economic policies? The, the Russia also has a parallel Eurasian economic union. So Russia had the CSTO for the military and then the Eurasian economic union, which was Russia's response to the EU. Uh, they have that kind of running parallel. But even that has come uh, upon some rocky grounds, uh, largely because of the country of the Eurasian economic union, with, again, with the exception of Belarus, um, have respected the sanctions that the West has put on Russia. Now, there's been obviously a lot under the table that has uh, gone on and you know, can be, uh, 
um, turning somewhat of a blind eye to some of, of, of what's going on in terms of economic interchange. But like the Cossacks are like, yeah, we, we, we're going to follow the sanctions. Uh, and in fact, we're going to invite Russian companies that want to flee the sanctions into Kazakhstan because you can do business here because the West likes us. And 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 so that's made that's even undermined the Eurasian Economic Union. The reason why I ask is because in the West we see how NATO troops and forces are protecting the infrastructure, for instance, energy infrastructure, or we see some projects, you know, that are very significant for economies of NATO members. So so I was thinking, you know, if if Russia is using or was using this uh, CSTO. In that way, you know, that sort of like smart way, how to also spread a little bit of influence as well. Um, what, actually, just kind of the opposite has happened, not necessarily through the CSTO, but because Kazakhstan has not been on the same page with Russia, there have been a, a number of um, problems with the, with the uh, with uh, Kazakh exports, uh, energy exports, which kind of came up. And there was even some like licensing issue or some docu, you know, some uh, some permits that that weren't filed right that the, the, that Moscow claimed. Um, so it's actually been just the opposite that uh, that Russia's influence has actually waned even economically in these countries, and Russia has not gone out to protect the uh, uh, the the economies of these other countries. When we speak about national interests, including infrastructure, energy, and economic policies, uh, we have to mention the reaction of the Russian national interest and this collective tr treaty. Because we have members like Kazakhstan and Armenia, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan. So how is the Russian national interest or interests, you know, reflect into this treaty? Uh, because if you are a member... You are supporting the treaty. So by that, you must also support the national interest of all the members. So how does it work in practice? Well, I mean, the, 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 the primary existential interest for Russia is to ensure that no outside power gets a foothold into its what it sees as its sphere of influence. Um, so that's the first thing that it does, which in that sense, it has been successful. Uh, of course, you know, Obviously, the Baltic states another story. Ukraine is is uh, that is uh, unwritten, but it, or at least hasn't been finalized yet. But at least within the CSTO, it has been success. Been a success. Um, but in terms of other Russian interests, um, you know, Russia has an interest in ensuring that um, it's able to continue to influence these countries. And also, there's ex expectation of reciprocity that these countries would support Russian goals, which that has not happened. So the, the, the there is there was a rumor the, that that kind of floated up that the Russians had asked the CSTL, "Will you send troops into Ukraine?" And that was flat out denied. Um, Will you support us in international institutions? Uh, like the United Nations, when there's resolutions uh, uh, about us. And that has been mixed. Um, some countries, like Belarus, have just supported Russia no matter what. Um, Kazakhstan and others have abstained from many votes. Or in, in some cases, they uh, I always found funny or find funny, they just forgot to show up that day. 
They didn't want to vote yes, no, abstain. They're just, we're not there. We're absent. Like the ambassador has something else to do. Um, but that also sends a message. It's not positive. So you don't see this positive outpouring support. Again, Belarus is a different case. Um, so that is very interesting. So if, if Russia's a secure, may, you know, existential interest, making sure no one gets influence in, in its region. Second would be this war in Ukraine, kind of a secondary influence, uh, secondary interest. The CSTO has not been a vehicle for that. Now, if he has something similar for the United States, of course, the United States invaded Iraq, say, in 2003. Not all NATO countries were on board with that. And in fact, countries like France and Germany openly opposed it. And you know, a lot of NATO countries refused to send troops. But that NATO had a much stronger foundation that could weather these crises. Whereas with the CSTO, it was already rocky, and it's gotten even rockier. Does CSTO, CSTO um, have any friends or supporters outside of the bloc? Because we see some sort of movements and geopolitical dynamics related to Iran, North Korea, and maybe there is a bit of silence support coming from China. What, what's, what's, what are your thoughts about that? Well, certainly, um, you know, Iran and North Korea have been great supporters of Russia and its war in Ukraine, not through the CSTO process. Is more just kind of bilateral. Um, China has been kind of sitting on the fence a bit more, I think, than Russia expected. Um, one thing that China has really resisted is any formal military alliances or, you know, they, they'll say we have a positive relationship with the CSTO, we support its goals. A lot of those types of issues um, have actually been filtered through another institution. So we have kind of this institution salad within the former Soviet Union, which is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization which is um, Central Asia, uh, with the exception of Turkmenistan, Russia, and then China, and now uh, Pakistan and uh, India. Iran is going to be joining, or they may have joined by now. Um, but a lot of those issues kind of filter through that. But that's even an even weaker organization. It's much more of a talking shop than anything that's supposed to have any real substance to it. So do you think that CSTO will expand? to new members, or do you think that it will sort of cease its existence? The CSTO, I don't, it's not going to expand. I can't imagine who else would sign up to it. Uh, Turkmenistan has had a historic neutrality. They don't want to be members of any organization. Um, or, I don't know who else, you're basically kind of running out of members at a certain point. Um, Uzbekistan has also sought to be independent in terms of its foreign policy. And also Uzbekistan is starting to also increase its ties to the West. So I can't see it any new members joining. Now, will members leave? That I think is probably, um, I'm a little less uh, clear about how that would actually turn out. We could think of it two ways. One, you stay in the organization and it doesn't really mean anything, but it makes Russia feel good. It doesn't provoke Russia. So, But by leaving, you would provoke Russia. So it's kind of cost-benefit analysis. If there's really no cost to staying in and playing nice, um, even Armenia says, you know, we're not leaving. We're just not going to show up to, you know, a meeting, uh, the summit. There's very little cost to that. Whereas provoking Russia and saying we are actually pulling out. 
that actually does potentially create a cost. So it's easier to kind of be in something that doesn't really have any effect than to actively pull out. So I don't think that's going to, that's in the cards right now. Because um, there are, I mean, it, at least again, in theory, it could still be useful one day because, you know, ultimately Russia is still going to be there. Ultimately, we know that Putin will not last forever and this regime will not last forever. So keep it for now, move to the future, see what happens. As you mentioned, in the case of Kazakhstan, that was the first instance of using the CSTO intervention. I think naturally there is a question following this information. Are there any CSTO troops or forces? There is a uh, kind of collective response team or crisis response team. But so even in the case of the intervention in Kazakhstan, it was with the umbrella of the CSTO, but it was every like Russia ran its own show um, and all the other countries that intervened. And, and they really just sent troops more for for for. Um, kind of performative reasons rather than any substance. They actually were not out there quelling violence uh, or quelling protests. They were just kind of there, um, kind of in the background. So in, so in, in that sense, there really, there's nothing like, well, even NATO doesn't really have troops. It just has um, institutions that can coordinate. And that's the best you're going to get with the CSTO, so kind of coordination bodies. But that's almost entirely going to be filtered through Russia. And when we speak about this organization, naturally, you know, the next question would be, what are they doing? Because we have so many meetings, like almost every second month, there is the statement, there is a picture of people gathering, there is one round table and Putin is sitting or some representatives are sitting together. And it's, it's, it looks very official, like, like we are leading some international organization and we have the whole teams behind. But when I was searching for information in Russian or English, I didn't find that much. So, so what, what are those people doing? Well, the word performative, I think, is is a word that would be appropriate here. Uh, think of it as just simply getting together, talking, making it clear to each other that you're you're at least in theory committed to positive working relationships. Because again, to go to not you know, to, to get rid of it would be saying you're, you're, you're making a message as well. So there's kind of symbolic, but yeah, in terms of substance, again, if we can, if we try to compare this to NATO, it's not even in the same scale. It's a, a very much a, a pales in comparison to that. Uh, you know, NATO has a deep institutional structure. I'd be curious, man, I don't know the details, but I, I can't imagine how large the CSTO staff is. You know, the NATO has, small you know, sub-headquarters throughout the world that actually have staffs data, dedicated to those, I can't imagine CSTO has much. So like that, the, the Eurasian Economic Union, I mean, they don't have a very large staff. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization doesn't have a large staff. We're, we're talking almost like a, um, a papered over, you know, kind of a paper mache over kind of a, a balloon that you've now that doesn't really just you're just has air in it and it looks big but there's really nothing there because if you crushed it it would just 
And also NATO has so many programs, for instance, oh, research yeah. programs for cybersecurity. We have so many policy papers published on the NATO official website. We know about those training centers of excellence. You know, so we can we can see, we can research those documents and we can write about it. But honestly, that CSTO, I haven't I haven't come across any document stating that we have some research centers somewhere in Moscow or different member states. And and to me it sounds like, you know, like if if you want to run something international and you want to fulfill some expectations of the member states, you really need some agenda. So so is yes. there no agenda of the CSTO or or how is it? Not really. Um, so, yeah, the, but part of that is also to allow for the creation of independent institutions. You have to be willing to give up some power. Now, it was still at its core an American alliance, American-centered alliance. The United States runs the show. But we have these institutions that serve American interests and as well as the interests of others. And we've helped to build that up. The Russians are not interested in that. The member states are not interested in that. So again, it's it's nice to get together, I guess. Um, it's sometimes pleasant. Um, you stay at nice hotels, you have some good food, and you just you know make this symbolic gesture towards we're willing to cooperate, which itself does not it does is not completely empty. I mean, there the idea of at least presenting the willingness to cooperate makes cooperation possible. And that while there, and there, it could be cooperation on a, a variety of issues, but where kind of the rubber hits the road, as, as we would say um, on all the key crises that have popped up with the CSTO and its members, the CSTO has been found wanting. And as a result, um, you know, it, it's not going to develop that institutional structure. If Russia was committed to something like a NATO, that'd be a different story. But they're, they want, they, their interests are far more limited. If you, the, the saying about NATO is that it was to keep the Americans in, uh, the Russians out, and the, and the Germans down. Well, Russia's interest with the CSTO is simply keep these countries towards us and make sure they don't get out of our orbit. And that's pretty much it. You remember the times when um, there were articles about, is there any agenda for NATO or does NATO have any agenda? It was sort of like institutional crisis of NATO. And do you think that that CSTO organization can also go through that step and find a new agenda for the future? Well, absolutely. So the NATO had its crisis, okay? When the Soviet collapsed, like, w w what do we do? I mean, some talked about just dissolving NATO, but NATO was able to find a new mission. And uh, the initial mission was, we're going to ensure that the countries of Eastern Europe, in particular, the Czech Republic, um, uh, Poland, and Hungary, the initial wave, that they do not have to worry about their security. All they need to do is to focus on their economic and political development. Now, of course, for the United States, it was also about expanding American influence, but we'll just you know talk about the institution itself. So it was able to find a new mission. And then eventually that mission has now morphed into expanding NATO even further, 
uh, promoting democracy. And then, of course, with the rise of China, there, there's some uh, thought about that. But also, of course, as tensions increase between Russia and the West, now um, keeping the Russians out is still part of you know, everything old is new again has now become part of, of NATO's mission. And as well as keeping the Americans in, and that's another thing that you know, NATO has the advantage that the European countries realize that without the United States, their security begins to spiral, spiral away from them. Even all the talk, like say, for example, in France, that we need to have you know a European foreign policy, European security policy, European army. Everyone knows that's not going to happen. Having the United, they, there's this desire to lock the United States in. You don't see that same desire in the CSTO to lock Russia in because Russia has been, was, and may always be an imperial power. And certainly these countries were underneath the Russian empire, whereas those countries of of NATO do not have that same relationship with the United States. The United States is far away. It's an outside arbiter. There's never, you know, the United States is not going to have any land claims against them and no real desire to dominate their domestic politics. Whereas that's not the case for CSOs. There's always going to be that distance in, baked into any relationship. And of course, Russia invading uh, or annexing uh, parts of Ukraine and, and having a full-scale war is not going to make anyone, certainly not going to make anyone less concerned about Russian intro, Russian desires in their countries. And is there any CSTO diplomatic strategy or, or diplomacy in, in, in general? For instance, you know, when you speak about NATO, you have NATO diplomacy. People, mm-hmm. even, even not members of NATO, are taking NATO as an institution and they are dealing with it. They have some sort of relationship with NATO or NATO members. And this creates a diplomacy, diplomatic movement, and many things are sorting out at the the level. And my question to you is, was there a sort of mistake that Russia made in terms of diplomacy so that CSTO is not proceeding as Russia wanted? I'm not sure how much of it was a a, a bug in the system, but rather... What is it was intended to do? Again, NATO was meant to do something different, I think, than the CSTO. So yeah, there really is no. I, mean, I think this, you know, Secretary General, this CSTO probably meets with with other, you know, dignitaries, but there's never a sense that that actually has any power to or any any real influence. So you're not going to go to the CSTO for training, for example, even though they have joint exercise and they may invite some other observers and things of that nature. It's nothing like NATO's actually helping to train. And in fact, some members of the CSTO have also trained with NATO. That is permitted. They just can't join an alliance. Whereas they're learning something from NATO. NATO has something to give them. I'm not sure the CSTO has anything to give anyone. So. There really is no diplomacy per se, because if you're going to talk to the CSTO, you're talking pretty much to, to not almost no real institutional structure. You might as well just talk to Russia. And countries, of course, have been a little bit mixed about how they want to talk to Russia in the current environment. One of the questions that, that I come across is the relationship between the BRICS countries and this CSTO. And, and some people were speculating that can the idea, not the CSTO itself, 
but the idea of CSTO be a sort of foundation for the future BRICS military treaty or organization? Well, we'd even have to back up further and say, what is really the role of the BRICS? Other than, again, kind of a talking shop of this kind of non-Western view on the world and, and of course, starting with the economy, but then having larger geopolitics. But even that's weak. Um, you know, India is playing, you know, a core member of the BRICS, but India is playing its own game because it, it you know, it wants to be aligned, you know, it, it has historical lines with Russia and so has positive relationship with Russia, but it's worried about China, which is Russia's ally, and it's been seeking better relationship with the United States. So the BRICS itself, I, I think there's a lot of talk about the BRICS, especially in the Western press, especially the American press, which we're like, oh, we're looking, we're, you know, it's a new, you know, uh, Soviet Union, you know, in terms of, you know, an enemy that, you know, it's alliance, but it's really not. Again, it's more of a, a talking shop. It's more of a, a maybe some small coordination, but it's there, there's even some talk about having a BRICS currency, a basket of of, of currencies that, that could be used. But even that's gone nowhere. So certainly, there's no if there's if the, if the BRICS, which is designed initially to be a kind of economic forum, if if they can't even get that right, a hundred percent they're not going to be able to take the next step into anything like a military alliance, especially if they're talking about expanding the BRICS even to more countries. It's hard enough for the, to get the initial members to agree to anything. Getting more members is going to be even more difficult. I think there are also many clashes inside the BRICS countries okay. as, as, as a bloc. Now we have Argentina, a little bit, you know, going out of that uh, gravity, let's say that way. And also it's it's interesting that Russian president couldn't, couldn't uh, come to South Africa for the summit because right. the security was not guaranteed. So it's... Uh, it was actually more than that. South Africa was it was uh, bound by treaty to arrest him if he showed up hmm. Hmm. because so, he has been indicted by the International Criminal Court. That's correct. So so basically, from that perspective, when I when I take BRICS, when I take CSTO, why are those concepts so over narrative in the West? Or why we have that sort of like big, big respect that something is forming, something has been formed, and it's it it represents the threat to the West or to the interests of some Western countries. Why 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 we have that sort of perception? Why why we speak about it that much? I think it's honestly a legacy of the Cold War. It comes back to this this sense of like, oh, look at these countries forming. Um, you know, there's still lots of talk about the Russian. Chinese alliance. Now they they are much more aligned, and there's much more cooperation. And I think as we've gone on, we've seen much more of a, a, a closer relationship between the two. But even that's not a block of anything. Um, I'm sure that you know every time this. Well, I know that every time the CSTO, or I'm sorry, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meets, uh, there's articles in the in the Western press about oh, you have this block that control, you know, runs Eurasia that has. You know, 2.5 billion people in it, um, you know, as this kind of counterbalance to the West. And then those of us who, who know a little bit more about this are like, yeah, but they got together, they talked, maybe there's some coordination on some minor issues. You know, they, they do coordinate on things like drug trafficking and, and, and things of that nature and some cross-border immigration. But the reality is that it doesn't have. I think we are in that mindset of alliances, 
and these, these kind of structures that look like ours, like Warsaw Pact did for the NATO. But the reality is is far, far different. I also think that there is that special aspect of nuclear weapons. You know, when, when CSTO is presented, it's always presented as a, a block or military treaty or organization with nuclear weapons. And people are suddenly like, oh, but we have to be careful, you know, because there are nuclear weapons. But we see, you know, that as, as we, we concluded today, that the CSTO is not as active, is not as capable as we might think. And I think this is a very good clarification about those blocks. And I think it's also sort of like a contribution to the knowledge, you know, to research more that CSTO, especially how it is at the moment. Because as we stated, you know, those official statements, that's the official narrative. But what's behind is very important. Absolutely. We just can't be taken in by the surface level, the uh, surface level presentation and actually have to dig deeper and and ask ourselves, what is it actually doing? And and even more importantly, what are the interests of its members? You know, NATO has a problem with Turkey. It's that simple. We have a serious problem with Turkey where Turkey, they're kind of an ally. I'm not even convinced at this point, but they still remain in the tent because they have more influence that way. And we actually have more influence over them, though there isn't actually a clause to kick any country out of NATO. No one thought of it, but well, here we are. Uh, So we have our, obviously NATO has its own problems, but the interests of the countries of NATO are much more aligned to continuing the cooperation and having this block. You don't have that. So we always have to ask, what do countries want? And what are their goals? And 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 do these institutions actually meet these goals? CSTO, not so much. Was there anything positive or significant during the CSTO times? You know, because as I read in at the beginning, you know, the the treaty was signed, you know, at particular year, basically after the Soviet Union. So mm-hmm. it's 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 a pretty long period of time. And and, right, and, right. and 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 still, you know, I'm thinking, were there any successes or sort of like positive outcomes of this CSTO organization? I actually think there. So, you know, I've been talking obviously poorly about the CSTO, and uh, probably won't be invited to any of their summits. Um, but I think that the initial treaty and even the CSTO itself has had some benefits because. If you have an institution, even if it's super weak, even if it doesn't really function that much, if you at least have the expectation of cooperation or even the the, the a context in which you are kind of required to perform a willingness to cooperate, that cooperation, again, is not meaningless. That performance is not meaningless because it, the opposite would actually be detrimental. If you say, well, now we don't have any institutional structures, then you're in in kind of pure uh, kind of international relations anarchy, not chaos per se, but you have nothing linking the countries. Where at least in this situation, there there is a a willing – the willingness to talk makes it more likely to be willing to talk in the future rather than have conflict. 
you know, Jar Jar is better than War War, as Churchill said. And even if all you're doing is talking, at least it's less likely you're going to be shooting at each other. And while the countries of, you know, with the exception of Russia's, in, you know, potential goals throughout the former Soviet Union, um, the only conflict, actual state state conflict we've seen within the CSTO is between uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan and and Tajikistan. The other countries don't really have those same issues. So still made, getting together, meeting, talking, pretending to cooperate, and going back, and that's better than the opposite. Have you spotted or have you researched about any impact of the CSTO on the security doctrine of Russia? I haven't done research on it, but I do know that it doesn't really have much uh, much of a role. Uh, Russia's security doctrine is based upon Russian interests and really Russian fears of of the West. Now, it's it's mentioned as a cornerstone of Russian security, but it doesn't really do again. As it's not doing anything, um, Russia is going to be taking care of its own security. And it's it's not like any of the countries of the CSTO can help Russia. And in fact, Russia's relationship with Belarus, again, we have this kind of subordinate relationship between the, you know, the hierarchical relationship between the two, that is mostly done through bilateral means rather than filtered through the CSTO. So, um, you know, Russia's increasing uh, uh, troop deployments in, in, in Belarus, that's not done under the umbrella of the CSTO. That's done in a bilateral manner. So the CSTO doesn't really play any role in that. Now, had you know the rumor been true that actually Russia did want the CSTO to intervene in, in Ukraine, and somehow they got the member states to agree, which is almost impossible, um, that might have tra- changed things. But the fact that Belarus hasn't even actively helped Russia. They've allowed for basing um, and, and for Russians to actually uh, shell into uh, and shoot missiles into Ukraine from Belarusian territory. Even Belarus hasn't gotten involved. And if Belarus won't get involved, the CSEO is not going to be able to, to do anything to secure Russia's second interest, first interest, you know, it's kind of existential interest in in, in keeping its... its uh, itself secure and then this one is is its most important active interest at the beginning i mentioned all the countries that signed into that treaty and and then of course we have azerbaijan left 1999 georgia at the same and then we have uzbekistan that left 1999 can we assess and briefly describe why those countries left i think it's different for for both so there you have the set of Georgia and Azerbaijan, which in the 90s started shifting much more, wanted to shift much more towards the West um, and, and against Russia. So that was much more of a, we don't want to be with you. And therefore, and says, we want to be with this other group. And of course, Georgia has long sought NATO membership. Uzbekistan is a little bit different. Uzbekistan, even though they've kind of been in and out of different institutions, Russian institutions, Russian-led institutions, Uzbekistan has wanted to have much more of an independent foreign policy and not have itself locked down to countries. So um, that that's why. So they, they want much more foreign policy independence. And because they're rather far removed from Russia um, and don't have they, – they do have, of course, border issues, um, say, with, with Kyrgyzstan because you have the, the Fergana Valley. But they're, they're kind of far removed from things. 
they're able to to sustain that. So that's kind of why that's it's it's not as uh, for Uzbekistan it's not we don't want to be with Russia. It's more we don't want to be with anyone. We want to retain our, our autonomy. Whereas for for Georgia and and um, and Azerbaijan, is, it, at least initially, it was we just don't want to be part of of your sphere of influence. Why the CSTO is functioning in this way? A bit of secrecy, a bit of formal meetings, but we don't have those pragmatic steps. And and we know that Russia is a big country and they have capabilities to do it. Also Kazakhstan, you know, also a big country as well. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, like is there any maybe theoretically when we speak about it, is there any theory behind why is the CSTO functioning? in this way and as we as we say and as we assess it's almost like nothing going on you know like it's there is like nothing to speak about and and that's you know like a bit strange for me why is it like that well i think we have to look at the interests of the countries and we've kind of already gone through a lot of that yes also with the exception of russia having a and belarus seeing a threat from the west none of the other countries are threatened by any outside power so if we contrast this to NATO, you had the Soviets right there. Um, Kazakhstan is not going to be invaded by China. Kazakhstan is not going to be invaded by the United States. The other countries are not either. Armenia was, as, except with the exception of Belarus, probably as closely aligned with Russia. And, and Armenia has found when the push came to shove, Russia wasn't there. And either they're as part of the CSTO or even in a bilateral way. When the uh, Azeris went in and basically took over Nagorno-Karabakh, the Russian peacekeeper just kind of walked away. So if that's the case, um, if you can't even get your bilateral relationship right, um, but Armenia isn't threatened by anyone else. So it's not like our, our, you know Iran is going to invade them or something like that. Um, the only again enemy they have is Azerbaijan, and Russia was found wanting. So, without that outside power or outside threat, there's no real need to align themselves with the United States. Again, contrast this with NATO. Again, NATO is is kind of the exception. The exception that proves the rule that uh, about the nature of alliances because NATO is the you know the probably the most is this, the most successful alliance we've ever seen, and the most institutionally um, deep alliance we've ever seen. So it's kind of hard to talk about, you know, NATO, you know, contrasting, everything's going to look weak vis-a-vis uh, -vis NATO. But certainly Russia's wanted to present it, the CSCO as a NATO. So therefore they've invited the comparison. And without that outside threat, why do we need, need Russia so much? Do you have any insights about Armenia I mean, in case why the CSTO, you know, didn't react or didn't yeah. didn't didn't go there, because I understand, you know, there is a geopolitical interest between Russia and Azerbaijan. It all related to oil, energy, and strategic uh, interests in the region. But still, you know, if I'm thinking about the CSTO, the peace mission, or maybe some sort of stabilization sort of procedure or mission, you know, could be could be possible in case of Armenia. But despite that. We didn't see any action in in Armenia. Right. You know, we so, we, we, we yeah. saw only only talking talking about this. We saw how Lavrov, Vladimir Putin. You know, they were like, yeah, we we are working on the security arrangement and all those things. But when we when we were reading after like two or three weeks after 
you know, I, I couldn't find any specific uh, missions or interventions or even peace talks between, you know, the CSTO as a bloc and Azerbaijan, for instance, which I think is quite significant to know. Right, exactly. So the the ultimately, again, this is a Russian shop, so therefore it's everything can be filtered through Moscow in terms of decision-making for the institution. And Moscow's argument was the Garner-Karabakh isn't part of the CSTO. It's not Armenia. We don't recognize them as part of Armenia. Armenia hasn't annexed this territory either. It's not even Armenia itself. And as the Russians actually have this, um, Armenia itself doesn't uh, recognize them as part of Armenia. So therefore, when Azerbaijan attacks it, they're not attacking a CSTO member at all. Um, when you had the initial ceasefire, well, not in the 90s, but like the, the 2020 uh, ceasefire where you had Russian uh, peacekeeper troops went in, it was made very clear that this is a Russian operation, not a CSCO operation. So the Russians themselves are the ones who intervened um, and, and sent in the peacekeepers, which, of course, were eventually pushed aside. So the, the, it was kind of a technical argument. Now, again, there was some shelling and, and some cross-border stuff that happened between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And there's some fear that Azerbaijan may try to force its way uh, through Armenia into the lockdown corridor, corridor or kind of or to, to take its its uh, the, the territory that's technically an exclave. Um, not the lockdown corridor, but the, the territory that's exclave. Um, if that happens, maybe the story might be different because then you have a full... A, a actual invasion of, of Armenia, but the Russians again are distracted. So they they uh, their response was, well, this is unfortunate, but we're looking. You know, we have other issues going on at the moment, and this is not enough to trigger the CSTO treaty. I think we we might agree that unless there is a significant impulse, the CSTO is not going to rapidly develop or, or or change in in institutional way but let's let's answer the last questions for today's interview what can russia and the members of the csto learn from this organization in terms of the security architecture or the security doctrines that they apply i think if lessons that well if i was you know advising Vladimir Putin, um, even back in the day or even now, I would say if you actually want this to work, you need to give these countries a reason to want it themselves. You have to understand what their interests are. Um, given the history, given what just you know is, is ongoing in Ukraine, um, the lessons to be learned from this is that uh, we can't have the, the same expectations. That we're not going to be able to, we're not going to create a new NATO because the interests are different. We always have to think about those. So I'm not sure what lessons can be learned other than this is a. If the goal was to create a Russian-led NATO, it is a failure. What could have been? What lessons can we learn from that? It wasn't in anyone's interest to create that. And if you wanted to create something like that, the interests have to be different. And it's unclear if that even could ever be the case. Because again, the relationship between these countries and Russia, going all the way back to the empire, that's a very different set of relationships than your counterpart in the West. Whereas the United States went in and they helped to save 
West Europe from falling to from you know again World War II, but also from falling to communism. And the United States does not have the interest and, and the, the history there. That's negative. You have you're always going to have that with the CSTL. That's never going to change. Dr. Ambrosio, thank you very much for your insightful thoughts and remarks about this very specific topic. I know that maybe some of our viewers might say, but there is nothing to talk about. But I think we clarified many important details about the CSTO. And I think it's also a good topic for research in terms of how it functioned in the past and what we can all learn from the CSTO. And also in some way, I think we also put a little bit of clarification to understanding of the, the CSTO in the West. That it's not like a military bloc as we have in our minds, like NATO or, or other you know, alliances. But this one, as Dr. Ambrosio said, it's not based on a common interest. Like what is the common interest of the CSTO, of, of all the members? You know, it's all led by Russia. And unfortunately, that sort of like style of management has some implications. And I think those implications are visible during crisis. Like we have the war in Ukraine, we have the case of Armenia, how in practical life the CSTO functions. So again, thank you very much for being on IO Thinker. Thank you for having me. See you next time. Take care.